Sports man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. All right, PFT PM Posse, you have been badgering me relentlessly and mostly politely for this next guest to make a return. Last time, we just talked to her for about 15 minutes because she was very busy and she was kind enough to give us a slice of a very busy day. Today, she's got more time. We'll see how long the conversation goes with former Raiders president Amy Trask. Amy, good afternoon. How are you? Well, good afternoon. We'll see how long it goes or how long it is until I bore you and you hang up on me. Let me do this now so I won't forget later because I want to plug everything that you do. You're with CBS Sports Network. The show is the other pregame show. That's still the show, correct? Yes, it is. It is. It is. And are you still part of the We Need to Talk show? I am, and I'm delighted to be going back in August to do one of those. How often is that on? Uh, It's a monthly show, and there's about a dozen or a baker's dozen of us, and we rotate as schedules permit, so I'm delighted to do one in August. And you have a book, and you know what? I've never read your book. And I can't, I'm ashamed that I've never read your book. And now that I'm kind of on hiatus from my radio and TV morning obligations, I'm going to read your book. Well, I am, um, I, I don't know whether to share that I'm horrified or heartbroken or a little bit of both, but really I'm just teasing you. And when we are not broadcasting, you will send me your address and I will send you one. Well, I appreciate that very much. Now, usually what happens is, there are so many sports books out there that they just show up at my house, so I never have to go buy them. And for whatever reason, either it went to the wrong address or it was never sent by the publisher, but I never got one. So It absolutely went to the wrong address because you were atop of my list. Okay. So All right, I'll, I'll accept that. Okay, good, good. So there's so many things we can talk about, and there's so much going on in the NFL, even in the slow time. Let, let me start with the thing that bothers me the most and concerns me the most about the future of the sport of professional football, and that is this new helmet rule. The lowering of the helmet to initiate contact, plus whatever other formulation the NFL has decided to slip into the rule book. This whole thing has bugged me from the get-go, the way that the competition committee tacked it on to 10 proposals that were made available to the media. Oh, here's proposal 11 that no one knew about. Oh, and it's been passed unanimously. Oh, and no one knows what the hell this rule is. Do you have this any sort of similar concern that I have that this new helmet rule potentially is going to change the NFL in a dramatic and irreversible way? Well, I, of course, have read all of your posts about this rule um, from the time it was first discussed at the league meeting through and including today. As you know, I'm an avid, avid, avid follower of your your website and have been a fan since day one. And by the way, I am going to add, because it gives me great delight to do so, that when you began PFT, I started reading um, openly, notoriously, avowedly from day one, and I used to get such a kick out of it. When I would go to league meetings and there was an office set up that league executives and owners could use during these one or two per club meetings, not the big giant ones, uh, not the big giant meetings. And we would all on breaks go into the league office and use the computers. And I would go in and there were people, every single computer was turned to your website and every single person was hiding the fact that they were reading your website. But I was doing it openly, notoriously and proudly. So, you know, I've read all your posts on it. I think you have articulated the issues beautifully. I'm holding my breath a bit to see how it plays out. There's tremendous ambiguity, and it can be applied in different manners by different officiating crews 
and differently in different games. And, you know, I've long said that I think what we want in rules is consistent application both within games and game to game. So I'm holding my breath to see how the heck this is going to be consistently applied. Yeah, that's what bothers me too, Amy. There are so many times where we see a rule in writing and we know it's applied differently than how it's written. And I always say, why not change the rule to mesh with what you're actually doing to ensure that that is always how the rule is applied and nobody says, well, this is how the rule's written. This is how suddenly out of nowhere we're going to choose to apply it. And I've, I'm concerned that somebody wants a blank check on this to interpret and apply it however they choose. And I don't know who they is, but I feel like the same they that has orchestrated this thing from, from the moment it was hatched secretly in March, somebody wants to have the ability to determine week by week, game by game, year by year, circumstance by circumstance, how aggressively or not this rule is going to be applied. Well, and and then you come back to the issue that that is my sort of peeve, if you will, which is consistent application. Whatever a rule is, it should be consistently applied within each game and game to game. Holding should be holding, whether it's in game one or game 16 of a given Sunday, or whether it's in the first quarter or the fourth quarter of a game. And I don't mean on Sunday, I mean within a week. Um, But it is a very broadly, vaguely written rule, and you've just got to apply them consistently, to use a phrase, for the integrity of the game. Yeah, and especially with gambling now, on the front end of this nationwide proliferation, the last thing the NFL needs is another rule that can be applied arbitrarily, broadly, in a way that the call isn't made on a 50-yard touchdown run, and there's video evidence that it happened, and then it is made later in the game on a 50-yard touchdown pass, and the the hit happens completely away from the play. It's irrelevant to what happens, and, and it gets called then. That's the kind of thing that will drive fans crazy, especially when people are wagering money on the games. Well, and, and look, you know, you're right, of course, and even if we want to give the benefit of the doubt to um, officials during a game, which is, well, you can't have your eyeballs on everything and the game uh, moves at lightning speed. So whether inconsistent application is intentional or inadvertent, there will be inconsistent application. And then we've got the overlay of the other issues you just mentioned. When you were working for the Raiders, what was your sense as to the NFL's true attitudes toward gambling? Because there's been huffing and puffing for years. But now that I feel like Pandora's box is open, there are plenty of owners who are fascinated by the money they can make directly and indirectly from legalized gambling. Well, look, my career goes back. You know, I started with the league or with the Raiders and thus the league in the mid 80s and was there for almost 30 years. And I saw an evolution over that period of time. There was a period, Mike, where teams were prohibited from putting on team websites anything having to do with fantasy football. So we got an edict from the league. There can be no reference to fantasy football on your website. And then, of course, it evolved to the point where now, yes, every team has fantasy on its site. So there has been an evolution over time. And, you know, I'm often asked the question, what do owners think? Well, there are 31 different owners and each of them has, you know, differing views, differing business approaches. Um, there's certainly some overlap. There's some consistency. There's a lot of inconsistency. I think some owners are far, far, far more willing to embrace this 
for the reasons you articulated and otherwise than are others. Who's really in charge of the league? Well, you know, ultimately, the league employees or the league, you know, league executives from the commissioner on down to every single employee, they're employees of the owners. The league is an association of 32 teams, and there are 31 different owners, 32 different management groups, and every single league executive and employee is an employee of those 32 clubs. End of story. That's the way it works. Now, does it always play out that way in any given day? You know, no, it doesn't. Are there owners who are far more involved in league management than are others? Yes, and in some cases, that's by the choice of the owners. There are some owners, in my experience, who don't want to be involved in the day-to-day operations and want to leave it to either other owners or committees or league executives. And there's other owners who want to be far more involved. I mean, I, if, if I have a moment, if, if you, you'd like, I have a funny story to share with you about that, but I don't want to take too much time answering your question. Any funny story? Now, you may have oversold it. I'll, I'll be the judge of whether it's funny uh, or not, but go ahead. Let, let's, see, let's see how funny it is. Fair enough. Funny uh, how? I, Uh, Well, I was at a two-per-club league meeting with Al, um, or I should say at one of the two-per-club meetings I attended with him. And two-per-club, as it is stated, owner and one person the owner brings with him. Uh, And we were at this meeting, and at one point, the owner of a club, he's no longer an owner, hasn't been for many years, stood up, towered over then-Commissioner Tagliabue, and sort of points down at him, gesturing as he's speaking. And he says to Tagliabue, Hey, pal, you work for me. And I'm in, in, you know, our Raider seats, which, you know, we were always the bad kids in class. So we were in the very, very back of the room. And I start bouncing up and down like, you know, an eight-year-old who's going, getting to go to Disneyland or something. I'm bouncing <laughs> up and down. I am so excited. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And, and Al, calm down, young lady. And I thought to myself, wow, I'm more excited by this guy saying to Tagliaboo, hey, pal, you work for me, than Al is, and here he is actually telling me I need to calm down. <laughs> but, you know, that, that guy was absolutely right. League employees work for the clubs. Boy, now I'm trying to figure out who would be tall enough to tower over Paul Tagliabue because he's not short. Okay, but I am. So understand from my perspective, Tagliabue is sitting down, <laughs> this owner standing up. So All right. To me, an owner standing up, leaning over something is always going to look towering. All right. Well, that, that, that's fair enough. And, you know, there's a sense now that there's a small handful of owners who, who run the show. And, and that has all come out primarily from controversies like deflate gate and john mara and 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 uh, i i you know i don't know who else mara's name is always the first one when when you were with the raiders uh, up until the end what was your sense of of who those owners were if there was a small handful who were they that really were the ones that that were in position to pull the strings of roger goodell well during my career there was another mara who was very 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 senior in terms of ownership and wielded quite a bit of influence and that was wellington mara and there was another rooney who was quite impactful and wielded quite a bit of influence and that was dan rooney and so yes john mara is one of the more involved owners and art rooney is one of the more involved owners but there's a tradition in the mara and the rooney family of of tremendous involvement 
Um, certainly throughout my career, Jerry Jones was a very involved owner. Robert Kraft was a very involved owner. I could sort of tick through the names, but it would take me too long to think them through. Um, but again, you know, I'll emphasize there were some owners who had other business interests such that they were happy to defer to the owners who wanted to be more involved in league management. And then there were other owners who might have wanted to be a little bit more involved, but, you know, they got a little bit of the by Felicia reaction. When, when the time comes for a new owner to be selected, when a team is for sale, most recently the Panthers, how much of it is when the owner, the candidate to be an owner is being assessed. How much of it is, does this person have the money to pay the purchase price? And how much of it is, is this someone that we are comfortable having in our club for possibly decades? I think yes and yes is the answer to that. Um, look, the, the sale process for a team is extraordinarily detailed and lengthy and whether, um, the owner of a team intends to sell 100% of the team, a majority interest the team, or even one half of 1% or, you know, a one hundredth of 1%. Every single sale requires league approval, and it is a long, long process. And every prospective owner is vetted whether that person is buying less than a percent or 100%. Now, certainly the second issue you raise as to, um, do we want this buyer in the fold, so to speak, is ratcheted up if the person is buying majority control or has a path to control, but every owner is vetted. And, you know, first the club works through the league office staff, and it's a lengthy process, and then it's elevated to multiple committees, which is a lengthy process. And only after the staff signs off does it go to the committees, and only after the committees sign off does it go to the league as a whole. And chances are if the league recommends the sale be approved, the owners are going to approve. And doesn't that give an advantage then to somebody who's already a minority owner of another team like David Tepper was in Pittsburgh, like Jimmy Haslam was in Pittsburgh, versus somebody who's a stranger and has to be vetted from scratch? If you've already been pre-qualified, I think that makes that person more attractive when the opportunity arises to buy a team. Well, it certainly makes the process easier and more fluid for the selling team. If you're selling an interest in your team to someone who's already been vetted, you've now carved a big chunk of time out of the process because the vetting has been done. You're right. Um, but now we'll circle back to the first point you made, which is as of now at least, and I'm going to put the Green Bay Packers aside because of the unique ownership structure there and speak to the other 31 teams, as of this moment in time, there is no public ownership allowed of those teams. There are very, very strict rules about who may own. There has to be one controlling owner. It can't be a board of controlling owners. There are, as prices of these teams, values of these teams, sale prices of these teams increase, there will be a shrinking number of candidates available to buy them. Because in addition to not allowing public ownership, if you will, in addition to not allowing corporate ownership, unless it's a single-purpose corporation formed for the purpose of owning a team, by virtue of the fact that one person has to be a controlling owner, you've really limited the number of prospective buyers to a very, very small group of, of wealthy individuals. And, Amy, that's an excellent point. I had an owner tell me within the past few years that the way this is going, as the equity increases, the value goes up, and that's the one thing the fans don't pay much attention to. We see the money roll in and it gets split between 
NFL and players as part of the most recent CBA, but the equity is always there and the, the values keep going up and up and up and they'll only go up in this new environment of gambling. At what point does the NFL have to go back to the drawing board and revisit its ownership rules? Because there won't be enough people who can satisfy the requirements to have the cash on hand necessary to buy and run the minimum percentage of an NFL team. Well, you know, you stated it beautifully, and and there was chitter-chatter on that, even as, you know, dating back to my years before I left the league, Um, because because of all the reasons you just articulated. There's one more feature to overlay on that, which is the desire of many, many, many owners to hand their teams down from generation to generation. And right now, you know, I'd have to sit and count with you, um, and you wouldn't be able to see me, but I would be counting on my fingers as I normally (laughs) do. Um, we can look at the number of teams that have been handed down from generation to generation. We identified the Maras and the Roonies uh, and the Davis family. These are teams that have been handed from parent to child. So now you've got the estate tax issue buried into all of that, which I think is another fascinating overlay. Yeah, and as the values go up and up, the estate tax obligation gets higher and higher, and you have owners who would like to bequeath the team to someone in the family, but you may just have to sell it in order to pay the estate taxes and then the process starts all over again and you sell it to somebody from that ever-shrinking pool of people with the money available to write the check and operate the team. And at some point, something's got to give. At some point, there simply won't be enough people with enough money on hand and they're going to have to consider some alternative path. I recently said, and I want to talk to you about these other leagues that are coming up, the XFL, the Alliance of American Football, but someone asked me, I don't know how it came up, but and I meant it when I said it, that if I was starting a football league, I would want you to be the commissioner of it. Is that something you would ever aspire to do, any football league, including the NFL? Uh, it, it's not something that intrigues me um, even one itty-bitty-bitty bit right now. That doesn't mean that might not change over time. Um, Before I answer that, I have to say one more thing about something you said earlier in this conversation, because you were 100% right to call me on this, and I am actually rather mortified that I did this. One should never label a story one is about to tell as funny. (laughs) Really, I I, I, I feel a little nervous talking to you, because I I don't think one should label something one is about to say as funny. That's up to the listener. So um, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed that I labeled my own story funny, and I, I want to apologize for that. So thank you for calling me on it. Well, no, um, and I, 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 appreciate, I appreciate that you, that there is still a gear in your brain that's spinning from 15 minutes ago. I like that. <laughs> um, one might say that it's very complimentary for you to say that a gear is still spinning. One might also say sputtering and distracting <laughs> me, but let's go with spinning. Um, look, you know, people ask me all the time, um, Aim, do you want to get back in the league? Would you go to another team? And I realize you're asking something different, which is about being a commissioner. To be very direct, I have been approached and I have had opportunities to go back to other teams. Uh, and I'm about to share something with you, but before I do want to make sure that I'm very, very clear that I am not passing judgment on anyone else. I'm not passing judgment on any of my colleagues from my years in the league or colleagues that were colleagues then that I remain in touch with now who move from team to team to team to team. And look, you know who many of these people, well, you know who they all are, 
But during my years in the league, there were executives that moved from wearing the green of the Eagles to the red of the Chiefs to the, you know, aqua and orange of the Dolphins or the silver and black of the Raiders. They moved from team to team to team. I never looked at my job as fungible. I was a Raider. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do a, a good job articulating this because I'm very passionate about it. And who knows, maybe I'll get choked up. But to me, being a Raider wasn't fungible. And again, I'm not passing judgment on anyone who chose to make a life for themselves in the league and felt that moving from team to team was okay with them. I was a Raider. And to me, that was very, very, very special. And as I said, not fungible. So, you know, I've declined to, or I, I, I don't know the grammar here, and I am getting all stuttery and stammery, but I've passed on those opportunities. Now, um, it would be a horse of a dif- different color if I owned a team. I've long said if I ever were going to go back somewhere, I would have to have ownership. So maybe you'd have to pose your commissioner question as to whether it came with equity or not. Okay, if you were the commissioner of the NFL, and this comes from one of our listeners, the PFTPM posse at The Real Forno, what would you change? What would you want to change if, boom, you were the commissioner of the NFL? Uh, The first thing I would do is try to repair, rebuild um, the relationship between the players and the league. Every single person involved in the National Football League, whether a league office executive, a club executive, a team owner, a player, a coach, um, an employee of the league or a team, every person has an interest in the success of the league, in the survival of the league, in the league thriving and being as good as it can be. And I think that that is best achieved through a partnership approach. And before the people that are listening who have business backgrounds and legal backgrounds jump in and say, but Amy, they're not business partners. I'm not using partner in the legal sense. I'm using partner in the vernacular, which is everybody has the same interest in the league thriving. And I think there needs to be a way to bridge that gap. Look, I understand that the union has a very, very important job to do representing the interests of the players. I get that. I understand that. I respect that. But I saw a huge shift in the relationship between the league and the players at the time that the league management changed or leadership changed from Gene Upshaw to Demora Smith. And again, I understand Demora Smith has a job to do representing those players, and it's an important job. But not every single issue needs to be a fight. And do you remember that Aesop fable about the frog that carries the scorpion across yes. the water? Okay, so they get to the other side and the scorpion stings the frog, having promised not to do so. And he looks at the frog and says, well, what did you expect on a scorpion? If you hire a litigator to run a business, then don't be surprised when every single business issue turns into an argument. And no, I'm not putting responsibility solely on D. Smith, but I did see a change in the relationship when D. took over for Gene. And I think the league and the Players Association have to sit down together and figure out a way to bring 
the teams and the league and the players together to make the league as good and strong as it can be. It's in everybody's interest. But let me push back just a little bit on that as sure. respectfully as I possibly can, because I sense that the change came not when Demora Smith succeeded Gene Upshaw, but when Roger Goodell succeeded Paul Tagliabue, that Paul Tagliabue was the win-win dealmaker who would spot problems and solve problems before they became problems. And Roger Goodell became the enforcer, the sheriff, the guy who was going to do things his way, the guy who was going to rule with the iron fist, the guy who was going to always drive the hardest bargain possible and always push, push, push and force as a practical matter, the union to be on a litigation footing, because if you're not ready to resort to litigation, they're going to run all over you. That's been the perspe- uh, the perception that I've had, and I've had people from the moment Goodell became the commissioner, agents that I know complaining about how we're trying to process these substance abuse suspensions, PED suspensions, and they won't even make deals anymore. They won't negotiate. They won't see the other side. They just ramrod through whatever it is they want. And I think that's contributed as much as anything to the current atmosphere between the NFL and the NFLPA. Wow. Um, Well, look, you and I have two entirely different perspectives on this. And, you know, one need never, ever, ever apologize to me for disagreeing. And you're always very, very gracious and reasoned. And, you know, heck, you can yell at me. You can disagree with me loudly and forcefully, and I would embrace that. My perception is different. And it was my experience in the league that there were times that that league staff, whether it was management council, which it was previously referred to, or league lawyers, would be reaching out to try to reach the union. And the union wouldn't even take their calls. And there would be issues that would be so easy for anyone to resolve. And union lawyers, union representatives would say, you know, we're not we're not empowered to even accept your phone call, let alone try to reach a compromise with you. So my perception is 180 degrees from yours. That said, you know, what's that old expression? It takes two to tango. Um, and, and perhaps the truth is that everybody's complicit and there's responsibility all around. You and I have different perceptions. Fair enough. We're both very good about articulating them reasonably. Well, but, but let's, let's continue that within the confines of one of the NFL's biggest current problems, because I think that that relationship you would love to repair and I think does need to be repaired. Regardless of who's at fault for it, it needs to be repaired. I think the relationship between the NFL and the NFL Players Association has contributed directly and significantly to the national anthem problem that has been lingering now for nearly two years for the NFL, because I'm a firm believer the moment that the NFL saw that Colin Kaepernick was sitting for the anthem, the NFL should have foreseen where this could go, and the NFL should have done what the NBA did 20 years ago and engaged the NFL Players Association to come up with a way to get the NFL players to agree to stand for the anthem. And problem solved. It's never an issue. Everything's fine. And it never happened. And I don't even think it was on anyone's radar screen for it to happen, which is proof of the the current state of the relationship, because if there was a true strong partnership between union and management, I think they find a way to fix this before it becomes the mess that it now is. Well, and you can say to, you can say that to any issue the league is facing, whether it's the one you just identified or rules implementation or health and safety, um, a collaborative, cooperative, communicative relationship between the players and the owners is 
only going to lead to better things. It's going to help resolve problems before they become problems. It's going to help resolve problems once they do become problems. I mean, look, I'm fond of saying, um, and when I send you that book, you're going to get to read it in there, that the four most important words in business are communicate, cooperate, collaborate, and coordinate. And so what you just said, whether it's that issue or any other issue, if those four words are put into effect and people are communicating and cooperating and collaborating, you're going to have better outcomes. We had another question from Vaughn, and this is a very broad question for interesting stories, and they don't have to be funny, or if they are, we don't have to call them funny ahead of time. Interactions with other league executives. Give me one that, that maybe you haven't told or you haven't told many times that, that may or may not be funny. Um, and I will never label it again as such myself. <laughs> I will leave that up to you. Well, this is, this is one that I think is, um, it, it's, it's not, it didn't strike me as humorous. I don't think it is. Um, but again, I'll leave that up to you. I, uh, my, one of my very, very, very favorite parts of my job, um, and certainly an extraordinarily fun part of game day, was spending time in the stands. And I did that throughout my career, pregame, during the game, whenever I had a moment, if I was running from one spot to another, or even if I wasn't, I would make the time to go spend with fans in the stands. Not just fancy schmancy seats, not just suites, but third deck, end zone, every level of the stadium. And I did it at home, and I did it on the road. And I loved, I affirmatively, passionately, really and truly loved my time in the stands with the fans on game day. Because without fans, there is no league as we know it. Well, one day, um, pregame on the field, the president of another team approached me and said, Amy, I always see you in the stands. You spend so much time in the stands with your fans, home games, road games. I always see you in the stands. And he said with like real bewilderment, why do you do that? Why do you spend so much time with your fans in the stands? And I looked at him and I said, why don't you? <laughs> I, I and and he, he had no answer. But what kind of an approach is that? Why do you spend time with your fans? I mean, Al Davis said to me for the almost 30 years I was with him, Amy, we're kid. The players are the game. And he was 100% right. But I would always respond or most often respond with, and without fans, there is no league as we know it. So I, I didn't understand the mentality of a league executive who was puzzled that I loved my time with our fans. And, you know, that gets overlooked so much. And one of my pet peeves, the extent to which the media is a conduit for the fans and coaches, players, teams don't want to cooperate with the media when we are in position to help ensure that fans get the information they need, have the stories that they can read, learn about the teams, be more engaged with the teams. And there are so many people involved in the sport that don't see it that way. Now, I understand that from time to time we we earn the, the reality that there are people who are hesitant because their words get twisted and turned and taken out of context or whatever the case may be. But that, that always drives me crazy when, when Bill Belichick is the way he is at a press conference. When it's like, hey, Bill, if you don't want you know media obligations, go coach lacrosse at a high school somewhere and you'll be paid accordingly because nobody's going to care. Well, and I had this discussion with Al throughout my career because um, I will put this delicately and diplomatically and um, would be interested in your reaction to it. But it, he wasn't shy about um, exiling certain members of the press, <laughs> not granting them access, don't let them in, 
they can't come here. And every time I would, you know, the discussion I would have with him, it was like a broken record, which is, so remind me whose nose you're cutting off to spite whose face, because <laughs> it just, it, it, we, Al and I argued about that a lot. And by the way, that's one of the biggest misconceptions about Al. Um, people perceive that you can't argue with him. Well, you know, if you couldn't argue with Al, if you couldn't disagree with Al, I would have been fired two weeks into my job. I, I feel, and I didn't know him, I feel like he's the kind of guy that, that welcomes that, that likes the the, the, the exercise, the, the, the competition of trying to make your point while trying to fend off the other point, but also having a willingness to accept that someone else may have a point and he may come out of it more enlightened than he was going in. Well, that was my experience, and what I learned was you want to disagree with him, fair enough. But A, come armed with facts and data and a reasoned, reasonable argument to support your position, and then recognize, at the end of the day, he owned the team. So I could try as hard as I could to convince him of something, and if I didn't, and he made a decision I didn't like, it was my job to effectuate that decision as best I could, um, and not to run around saying to anyone, which I never did, this isn't my decision. This isn't my, you don't distance yourself when the owner of the team makes a decision, you do your job trying to effectuate it. And it is the decision of the organization with no finger pointing. You know, and I'm, this just occurred to me as you were explaining that, and, and this may be ridiculously wrong, but I'm curious, did you ever get the feeling that maybe sometimes he would push you and argue with you and fight with you on something he was going to do anyway, just as a way to just, you know, if you can deal with him, you can deal with all the other people from other organizations in the league office that you have to deal with. It's like it's like a great receiver dealing with a great cornerback at practice. Hey, you're going to be much better suited in the games when you've had to deal with that pain in the butt every day for, you know, uh, all the training camp and into the preseason. Um, that is an overwhelmingly insightful question and kind of choked me up a little bit because the fact is um, what you just articulated and what you recognize, it took me until decades into my career to think, hey, wait, maybe there is an element of that going on. Maybe he's trying to train me, push me, develop me. Never, ever, ever occurred to me for decades. I thought we were just having arguments. Well, and that means it worked, right? Because that's the <laughs> best way to do it. Because if you think, if you know that he's just that that he doesn't truly believe it, then you don't take it as seriously as you otherwise would. So he did it well. That's the bottom line. And, he did it well. Since you didn't recognize it, he did it perfectly. And and I think there were probably times he did it, and probably times we were just arguing. And sometimes our arguments devolved into what can best be described as very very childish. At on the both real of our ends. on both of our ends. But you know, it's good that you can that that because now I feel like now. There are so many relationships, and we see this between general managers and coaches a lot, where they just can't find a way to get along. And they, they, can't, they can't argue without being upset with each other and, and giving each other the cold shoulder. The stories I used to hear about Jim Harbaugh and Trent Baalke, you know, riding on an elevator together and not saying a word to each other in a group of you know, five or six other people and just, just freezing people out. And I, I don't know how you could function in that environment. The, the sport is difficult enough because you're fighting with everyone else. If you're fighting with people on the inside and you can't find a way to get along, how in the world can an organization function in a positive way? You know, you are preaching to the proverbial choir because one thing that always just, I, I found it, in, I still do find it incomprehensible. Not only did I find it, I still do find it incomprehensible and unacceptable is 
why people think it's okay for adults to act in a manner that we wouldn't allow our children to behave. So, and, and when I say our children, whether it's, I'm not talking about your child and I don't have two-legged children. I only have the kind that have three or four legs. Um, Wait, what do you have that has three legs? Well, no, I'm saying when you rescue a pet, sometimes they don't all Well, that's true. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. That's that fair. Kind of, I'll, I'll, okay. That's right. I mean, it, it. Right. I. I was once chased by a three-legged dog, so I know yeah. what you're talking about. And, and I was trying to be uh, here. I was trying to be really, really welcoming of the fact I'm a very big animal rescue advocate, and you know, you always want the three-legged dogs and cats to be rescued as much. And I ended up just confusing the whole subject by suggesting I was rescuing aliens or something. <laughs> uh, but, but the point. The point is this. When, when I read or hear or know personally or knew personally of a GM and a coach that were arguing or two club executives that were arguing, and, you know, you want to sit them down and say, I would not allow children, whether my own or in the village in which I live, to behave as you behave. Why would we expect more of eight-year-olds than we expect of adults? And I know this, were I a team owner? I would say to coaches and executives and employees in that instance, if you ask me to choose one of you, I choose neither. So you need to figure out a way to grow up and behave as we would advise children to behave. Because if you're asking me or pushing me to pick one of you, my answer is I will pick neither. And that's a great way to put it. And it does drive me crazy when adults act like children and other adults make excuses for them. Well, that's just the way Joe is. Well, Joe's an asshole. And someone needs to tell Joe he's an asshole and he needs to stop being that way. Period. Well, and would and would Joe, in your example, accept that same behavior from Joe's eight-year-old? Because if the answer is you're not going to let your children behave in a certain manner, then why in the heck is it okay for you to behave that way? Excellent, excellent observation. The real Forno has a question about Al Davis. Other than straight line speed, which we all knew for decades was one of his his most uh, important uh, attributes he looked for in a player. What other things did Al Davis like when he was looking at players? You know, I saw that on Twitter, and I, I smiled when I saw it because my my fun answer will be well, other than straight line speed and speed and speed and straight line speed <laughs> and speed. Okay. Um, the answer is an element of toughness, an element of, you know, I, I remember him talking to me over the years, and I had just the tremendous, tremendous privilege and pleasure of, of learning and talking X's and O's with him and so many others over the years. And one of the things he articulated was, the expression was, hit him in the mouth. So when you are a lineman coming off the line of scrimmage, hit him in the mouth. And so there was an element of toughness articulated in that manner it wasn't necessarily literally hit him in the mouth but you understand what i'm saying well and and that element has become disfavored in recent years in in the nfl's quest to make the game safer the the aggression the violence is being stripped out of the game we talked earlier about the helmet rule and one of my fears for the nfl is that the game will change to the point where someone out there with not enough to buy an NFL team, but enough to start his or her own football league and go toe-to-toe with the NFL is going to embrace football the way it was played in the 80s and 90s and 
roll back all the safety rules because, hey, let's just draft a waiver and every player signs it and everyone knows the risks. And oh, by the way, they're willing to accept the risks and they're going to go punch each other in the mouth, literally and figuratively, and play football the way it used to be played. I think that's one of the biggest threats the NFL faces right now, and I don't think they realize it. Uh, And I don't, you know, this might make you laugh. Um, I don't have a view on that yet. I'm still sort of weighing everything and and seeing where this goes, and I, I don't know the answer to that. But when you see the videos from back in the 80s and 90s that the NFL used to market for people to enjoy watching all the big hits oh, yeah. all it, they're all gone now you watch those old highlights and it's like oh my god the guy'd be suspended for seven games if he did that now and it hasn't been a revolution it's been an evolution and that's my concern that this new helmet rule depending upon how it gets applied it could trigger that revolution and that could be the moment where fans are like wait a minute what happened to the game that i grew up watching and why aren't they allowed to play the way they want to play it they that no one can say they don't understand the risks now there was a period of time where you could argue they they were kept from knowing the risks they now know the risks and if the nfl isn't gonna let them play they the way they want to play i could see another league pop up at some point and give the nfl a run for its money and fans some fans not all but some fans would flock to that and it'll be interesting to watch that evolve i mean there are at least three leagues right now in their you know incipiency and we'll see what happens with the three of them and you know, is it going to help that there's multiple ones or is it going to hamper that there's multiple? Would it be more of a viable alternative if there was only one? I, I don't know the answer. On that point, then, as it relates to these other leagues, you know, we have seen so many leagues over the years that have tried and failed. Why do you think there's this this and I don't want to say quiet confidence, actual confidence that the XFL, the Alliance of American Football, that they can come in and they can make an impact when so many others before them haven't? Uh I don't, I don't know that they will make an impact. Uh, I'm not ruling out the possibility that they will. They certainly may. One may. The others may not. I, what intrigues me is you've got at least three, and I'm not even counting the flag football ones, that are popping up at relatively the same time. So from a business standpoint, do they dilute one another? So, you know, would it be more viable if there was only one new league popping up as opposed to multiple ones? I think that's got to be factored into the analysis as well. Last topic, and this is the thing that prompted me to finally get this scheduled this week because I saw your reaction to the NFL's refusal to let Laurent Duvernay-Tardif wear the MD on the back of his jersey. I'm still struggling to come up with why the NFL refused to do that. Your thoughts on why the NFL did it and what the NFL should do about it? Well, I'll answer them in reverse because I think the second part is very easy. I think the NFL should allow him to do it. Um, I don't know why the league did what it did. What I posited on Twitter was if the league did it because their view is, well, wow, if you do it for one person, you've got to do it for everybody. Well, okay. Good. And (laughs) yay, that's a good thing. Um, This man, you know, I I like him. He went out and got a, a, a medical degree. If That should be applauded. What a wonderful message to kids watching the game, which is you can pursue your passion on the football field. You can pursue your education. You can do both. And if the league, and I'm not suggesting this is the case, I don't know, but if the attitude was, well, if you do it for one person, you have to do it for all, look, we draw lines in life all the time. Maybe the line you draw is if it's a graduate degree, it goes on. If it's a JD, an MBA, a PhD, 
some of the responses I got on Twitter were, well, where do you draw the line? And, and my answer is, we draw lines all the time in life. Were I the person making this decision or in a position to advise on this decision, I would say, celebrate this. In a day and age where um, things about the league are being called into question, whether it's health and safety or otherwise, salute this. Just like Justin Tuck of the Ravens, um, and, and I'm, I hope I've got the player right. I know you'll correct me if I don't. He's a sensational opera singer. Salute that. Um, that, that you have Tucker, players, Tucker, uh, Justin Tucker. Tucker. Justin T- oh, my gosh, I said Justin Tuck, and you know why yes. I said Justin Tuck? Because, um, and that goes all the way back to when the Giants defeated the Patriots, and it came after the Tuck rule, and I thought it was great that Justin Tuck was involved with that. Okay. Um, the, the, okay, that Justin, word is, is, is tattooed onto your brain. It is, it is, it is. And so I apologize to Justin Tucker. That was um, poorly done by me, my, on my part. Um, you know, celebrate the man. This man is an opera singer. He's magnificent. Celebrate that. Celebrate that someone is an MD. You know, I I don't. I, w- I would put the MD on the jersey. I've got an ultra cynical view on this, and I hope it's wrong, and I hope I'm over the top and out of line. But the only plausible explanation I could come up with, Amy, is that deep down, the NFL doesn't want these guys to have anything but the NFL as their means of financial support of the thing that they do until the NFL is done with these guys. And I don't mean any individual teams. I just mean that's the broader attitude. And when you start hanging out these examples of other things guys can do, maybe they'll start thinking, hey, there are other things I can do. I don't need football. And then you start having guys walk away from the sport younger and younger. And now the NFL is so concerned about the ongoing supply of players that at some level, they don't want to encourage guys to go find other ways to make a living. Is that overly cynical and out of line? Um, I'm not going to go with you on that. Um, I can't say you're overly cynical. Um, There's a great, great um, saying, if you will, it's called Hanlon's Razor. It's an aphorism, not a saying. There's a great aphorism, Hanlon's Razor. And it's something to the following effect. Um, Never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. And so I hear what you're saying, which is that it was a calculated um, decision for the reasons you stated. It just may have been a bad decision. And I used to have this discussion with Al as well when he'd be pointing to things the league office did with respect to the Raiders. And he would assume immediately it was um, mendacity or, you know, it was malicious. And I'd say, you know what, let's not always attribute to malice that which can be explained. You know, some people say Hanlon's razor says it's stupidity or incompetence or it's I guess the difference is and I will speak in legal terms to you given your background it it may not be um, malfeasance it may be misfeasance and you know what that's a great way to put it and based upon some of the things we've seen over the years from the NFL frankly that's the more reasonable explanation that's where Occam's razor comes into play I love Occam's razor. If we could just always apply Occam's razor and Hanlon's razor, we, 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 could, we could run things, Mike. Well, th- this has been excellent. I appreciate so much your time, and uh, we will check you out on CBS Sports Network, and I look forward to reading your book, You Negotiate Like a Girl. I apologize I haven't read it yet, and, uh, and I'll get you the address, and, and I will devour quickly. it. And, and to whomever got your last copy, I hope they liked it. All right. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Mike. 
You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.